1: And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor at China and Global Affairs in Austin, Texas. I'm Emily Tamkin, Senior Editor US in Washington, D.C.
0: I'm Ida Volk, your correspondent in Berlin.
3: It's Thursday, the 15th of September. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs.
0: This week we're discussing Russia's war in Ukraine. What's the latest on the Ukrainian counter-offensive? How far can Kyiv's forces go? Ukraine is returning its own. And it will return the Kharkiv region, the Lugansk region, Donetsk region, Zaporizhia region, Kherson region, Crimea, definitely our entire water area of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, from Zeminia Island to the Kerch Strait. This will happen. This is ours.
2: We also discuss Russian President Vladimir Putin, his latest meeting with China's leader Xi Jinping, and what other options he might turn to. We also take a listener question on Sweden's recent elections. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin.
3: All right. Katie has not uh, relocated to Texas. She is, however, doing a book talk. If you have not yet read her book on how authoritarians and aspiring authoritarians use history to justify their own potentially bad decisions, it's not irrelevant to today's discussion. But Katie Ito, thanks for joining me today. And let's just get right into it. There's a lot to unpack. Ukraine is now carrying out a counteroffensive against Russia doing so, so far, successfully. Ukrainians say that they hope to continue this counteroffensive and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky vowed to retake all territory from Russians, adding, quote, truth is on our side, end quote. Ido, can you just tell us in a bit more detail what the latest is on the counteroffensive?
0: For months, really, we were hearing about the Ukrainians preparing a counteroffensive in the Kherson region, um, which is in the south of the country. So sort of due north of Crimea. There is some action on that front. What what everyone's been talking about for the past week or so is a spectacularly effective counteroffensive in the north of the country around Kharkiv, which is the main city near the Russian border, where Russian forces had made some progress in the first few weeks of the war, although um, they they'd become stalled uh, in the past few months, and the Ukrainians stormed through several cities, so in particular uh, cities like. Balakliya, Kupiansk, Izum, all of which are sort of quite important hubs, uh, quite important strategically, and not all of this information is independently confirmed, but they claim to basically now control almost the whole of Kharkiv Oblast. So they've liberated almost the whole of, of, uh, of the Kharkiv region. They've captured thousands of square, of square kilometers of formerly occupied territory and have in many cases pushed up to the Russian border.
3: Two things. First, we were recently speaking about um, on this podcast about energy and the potential energy crisis in Europe. It seems to me, watching from Washington, that it makes it more difficult for European politicians to say, actually, we need to, you know, we need to soften our stance on this. We need to pull support from uh, from Ukraine because we need you know, energy this winter. It seems like this makes it more difficult for them to do that. But what is the view from Berlin?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the Ukrainians now have proved beyond doubt that they are capable of spectacular successes against the Russian army with the right support, with the right weaponry. And if there were any kind of doubts as to, you know, I mean, there there were people saying throughout the war, sending weapons is useless, it just prolongs the inevitable. Um the Ukrainians aren't gonna win. They need they need to sit down to negotiations at some point. That has really been shown to be to be completely hollow now. The Ukrainians really can win with the right with the right weapons. I mean, we need to kind of recognise that a lot of these successes are because the Ukrainians have gotten some very advanced weaponry from I mean the Europeans, but really uh, the Americans in particular, uh, things like HIMARS and harms missiles, anti-air defence weaponry, quite advanced kit like that by using it cleverly and and smartly they've managed to completely rout the russian forces in the north of the country that's not to say necessarily that that will be the experience as we go further south so into into the donbass and who knows into perhaps uh, eventually they might be looking at crimea but it is to say that the ukrainians have proven that they are capable of of fighting back and uh, not only holding their line but pushing the russians back that will have vindicated the people in europe who were who were calling for europeans in turn to to hold the line to keep supporting ukraine and to avoid pressuring ukraine to make concessions even though uh, we've got this energy crisis Coming up, and actually, just yesterday, just yesterday uh, we had the State of the Union speech, which is uh, an, annual, an annual speech given by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Quite a big part of her speech was was about uh, countering the energy crisis and. She announced a, a raft of new measures, um, so she wants a, a windfall tax on energy producers. She wants to decouple the price of electricity from the price of gas, which means electricity generated from other sources uh, will be able to be sold more cheaply rather than at the price of gas, which is obviously astronomical at the moment. And she wants to reduce demand and all of these things. I mean, they're not going to completely remove the pain, but they should make the winter a bit easier and and the crisis are, are, are a bit more manageable.
3: You know, this sort of changes the the tenor of the conversation and the stuff that I mean, changes the conversation completely, because I think at first many watching this war were wondering, okay how much territory can Ukraine keep? And now people are wondering how much will they take back and what will that include? And will it include Crimea? Katie, can you speak a bit about why Crimea is different and particularly in the Russian perspective? And obviously, listeners, Crimea is not something that was taken and this war, but rather several years ago, by it was annexed and then a Russian referendum. What I'm trying to say is, yes, there was a degree of local will, but that local will was supported, backed and enforced by Russia. So that's Crimea. Katie, take it away.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that's the first summary. I was in Crimea during the run up to the referendum and it was... Very much being framed as a choice. I mean, literally on billboards that you would see on the on the side of the road, a choice between this great black swastika on one side and then the Russian flag on the other. There was wall to wall propaganda on Russian language television channels, which were genuinely quite popular there. Really framing what had happened in in Kiev with the Maidan Revolution as this fascist takeover. And so this was a referendum. That was held you know amid this barrage of propaganda and also with men wielding kalashnikovs outside the polling stations um, so it, it was not a referendum that would meet any free or fair international standards nevertheless i do think crimea is a different calculation for russia the return of crimea as it is um described there and to be clear this was an illegal annexation there was there was no kind of returning voluntarily element about it that was very popular in Russia, across even some relatively liberal commentators. Even Gorbachev described it as a happy event, the return of Crimea. And when you look at survey data of events that Russians are proud of in recent history, one of them that always factors is the quote, return of Crimea. So I think Russia would be reluctant to give it up from a political perspective, but I think also from a military strategic perspective, Crimea is so important to Russia because of its Black Sea access, because of the Black Sea headquarters and base at Sevastopol. So I do think if Crimea was genuinely threatened by Ukrainian forces, that's when we might start to see some of the most serious options really, really be on the table from the Russian side. I think we're some way from that. You know, I think, yes, we have seen, you know, absolutely stunning advances in in the north and east, but the situation around Kherson in the south, as as Ido has laid out, is very different. We are seeing significantly slower progress there. But that's not to say Ukraine can't keep pushing. And I think, you know, there were both political and military objectives in the counteroffensive that we've seen here. You know, it was important to reclaim these key strategic hubs. It was important to take back territory where, you know, we've seen from the videos of Ukrainian forces arriving, you know, people coming out of their houses and and hugging them and and thanking them. You know, it was important to bring this territory back under Ukrainian control. But it was also essential to show ahead of energy difficulties that Edo has outlined potentially quite a difficult winter in Europe ahead to show that Ukraine still could take the fight to Russia, that the weapons that Western countries have been sending are making a difference. So I think this was exactly what Ukraine needed to do now in terms of both its political and its military objectives, but we should be wary of getting too far ahead of ourselves in in terms of expecting another lightning advance and more breakthroughs on the Southern front in in the near term.
3: Well, that's a neat point at which to transition to our next little mini subject, which is not Kyiv, but Moscow, so relatedly. Yet on Russian television shows are now wondering aloud whether Putin's decision to go to war in Ukraine was the result of bad advice, which is to say some information that the war is not going well for Russia has managed to cut through. And that's to say nothing of the impact of sanctions on Russia's economy or on individual Russians' lives. But what options has Putin left himself? I also want to note, we're recording this on Wednesday. Today, uh, Reuters reported an exclusive that as war began, Putin rejected a Ukrainian peace deal recommended by an aide provisional deal that would basically say that, OK, Ukraine wouldn't join NATO. I was thinking about this yesterday before this news broke that, you know, we speak often on this podcast on how self-defeating this war was because, you know, it, it, it strengthened Ukrainian identity and pushed Ukrainians away from Putin. But it, it's also like had Putin not decided to go to war, you have Zelensky, who was an unpopular president at the time. You have reality, which is that they weren't going to get into NATO and they weren't going to get into the EU. They were not on track to do that. One could argue, and I would certainly argue, that the political objectives that Russia claimed to have would have been like all they had to do was nothing, and those objectives would likely have been satisfied at some point. But that didn't meet to go back to Katie's book and, and and the theme that we speak about often on the podcast. That would not have gone along with this rewritten version of history. I'm starting with this because I think that that we need to kind of have that in the back of our minds as we speak about Putin's options going forward, right? Like it's not, it's not as though half a year has passed and his idea of history has changed or like he suddenly surrounded himself with more critical and honest advisors.
2: But Katie, what, what do you make of where he's at? Well, firstly, that I would like us collectively to retire forever. The image of Putin as this grand chess master who's playing 5D chess while everyone else is playing checkers and thinking 10 moves ahead. This was a massive strategic blunder. And I'm I'm working on, on a piece that I think will be out later this week on how the system that Putin has built has enabled this, because either there was an extraordinary military intelligence failure ahead of this conflict that somehow did not pick up that Ukraine was both a real country and the Ukrainians would fight to defend it, or there was a failure to pass that intelligence up the chain. Putin has consolidated and has personalized power over the last 22 years, and it was striking when mid-level Russian diplomat Boris Bondarev resigned earlier this year, I I think in May or June, the description he painted of the process for passing um, intelligence to Moscow was damning. You know, he talked about the the collective failure to point out difficulties instead of dressing it up and, and pretending that that things were fine, and the imperative to send information to Moscow that was certain to be liked. So I think some of the some of the strategic blunders that we're that we're seeing are born of this system around Putin and the difficulty of, of giving him clear, candid, accurate advice. But I don't think that's going to change with this counteroffensive. I think arguably the worse the outlook on the ground and the more difficulty Russian forces are are under, the more likely those beneath Putin are going to try to save their own skins, um, blame, blame other intelligence services, blame other military commanders, blame the West. So I think there are real questions as to whether the system will course correct to be able to to make better decisions going forward the thing that really occurs to me looking at this week and and thinking about you know Crimea and what happened back in 2014 is that the way putin has framed this conflict is not as well give <laughs> after the failure of the initial offensive you know is not as a matter of months he has been openly talking about peter the great and his great northern war that lasted 21 years And he has been fighting some level of conflict in Ukraine for eight years now. So I think this really goes back in the Kremlin's understanding and certainly Putin's understanding to at least 2014. And this idea that that this broadly pro-Kremlin leader in Yanukovych had been overthrown and that Ukraine's government was now moving away from Moscow's orbit, arguably it goes much further back to the the color revolutions of, of the early 2000s. And this sense that Ukraine And all of the strategic vulnerability that comes from from seeding influence in Ukraine was moving out with Russia's control. So I think this is a very long way of saying whatever short-term setbacks we see on the ground, it's entirely possible that Russian forces do regroup, readjust, downsize their, their objectives. But I don't think there will be an end to this. I think even if Putin went to peace talks tomorrow and agreed a ceasefire, we should see that as a strategic pause while he regathers his his, his resources and, and prepares to, to push forward again. So I think this is a long-term problem. And we need to understand the sort of long-term objectives on the Russian side, despite, you know, the, the very real reversals and the very real difficulties that Russian forces are now encountering on the ground. You mentioned at the top there his latest meeting with
3: Xi. We've written about this. We've spoken about this. But... What do you think people are perhaps getting wrong about the Putin-She relationship at this
2: juncture? So they met immediately before the war or three weeks before the war was when they declared this no limits partnership. And there was a lot of discussion immediately after the outbreak of the war then as to how much she had known. Some analysts said he had been played, that Putin had put him in this position of now having to stand alongside him. Some people thought that she would see this for the Strategic disaster that it was, and decided to distance himself from Putin. China has done none of that. China has has walked, you know, a fairly consistent, quite difficult line from the start, which is not to distance itself from Russia and still to offer diplomatic support and certainly a good amount of economic um, support. Russian exports to China have really surged since the start of the war, so they're they're prepared to offer diplomatic and economic backing to an extent. But they have never been prepared to go further to provide Russia with direct military aid or so far to come out and directly even use the term war and offer explicit backing from it, which is the same approach they've they broadly taken. For instance, they do not recognize the annexation of Crimea. They are meeting again this week in Uzbekistan, it's possible that they will have met by the time th- this podcast goes out. And now there's a lot of speculation again about, is this the moment that she makes a break with Putin and decides that he's a losing bet? I would argue no. I would argue, again, the more trouble Putin is in, the more she is going to want to be seen to be, you know, again, not explicitly endorsing the war, but to show that he's not stepping away from Russia. He he values Putin, you know, he, he has put his own reputation to some extent at stake with the personal link with Putin. And he is unlikely now to suddenly throw his hands up and say, I got it wrong. My judgment was flawed. The guys are wrong, I'm I'm walking away. But I think more importantly, he values Russia as a partner in the pushback against the US, which he considers as the much greater contest. So he does not want to see Russia suffer a humiliating defeat in Ukraine. He doesn't want proof that Western sanctions work and to inspire greater Western unity going forward. So I think it is unlikely to be very exciting, but I think he's going to walk the, the same line of offering a substantial level of support for for Putin without explicitly risking the, the Chinese economy or Chinese objectives. And then,
3: Ido, you know, I think whenever it looks like Ukraine is doing well, and especially now, you get quite excited Western observers saying that, I, I don't mean officials, I mean just people who are following the war who were saying that this will end with Putin pushed out or you, you have people calling for the for the decolonization of Russia it seems to me that both of those are extremely unlikely but I wanted to know one what you thought and then two if they are unlikely and Putin remains in power until for many years um well, where does that where does that leave him what choices does that leave him with?
0: Everyone, everyone knows that Putin's legitimacy, such as it is, doesn't rest on a, on a popular mandate. I mean, no one has any illusions about that. It rests on the idea that he's a strong leader and the idea that he's a competent leader. And at the moment, he very much does not look strong. This is the allegedly second army in the world being defeated by the army of, as they see it, a non-country. Really quite humiliatingly, they're unable to take any of the hard decisions on things like mobilization, um, and so they're, they're needing to go to, to recruit in prisons and from homeless people and all these kinds of extreme measures. Now they've stopped, they've stopped insisting that everything is going to plan, but for some time they were. But you know, everyone knows that the plan when they went into Ukraine on the 24th of February was not to be withdrawing from Izum in September. And so that leaves Putin in really quite a bad position. The Ukrainians, at this point, it looks like they're in a better position than the Russians. They've got a complete mobilization across the country. So they have a a really big army, probably a bigger army than the Russians at this point. They're getting, you know, really good armaments, really good weapons from Western countries. As I said, they're using things like High Mars and Harms rockets. I mean, they they continue to say they're not getting enough, but they are they are getting a, a sort of steady stream of weapons from Western countries. While the Russians have the opposite problem because, um, sanctions make it very difficult for them to build, to build new stocks of advanced weaponry and to repair the weapons that they have. And so they're having to use uh, very antiquated equipment, whereas the Ukrainians are basically in a, in a much better position. And Russia now can, can really only choose how to lose. It can continue to put off the hard choices. So avoid mobilization, total or partial which would obviously bring the war a lot closer to the Russian population than Putin would have liked, which is why it's avoided it so far. Putin could declare a war and an act of mobilization, but obviously that would shatter the illusion that nothing really is going on and that normal life can just continue as normal for Russians. And of course it would take months to train the people who are called up while Russia is having difficulty now. And of course, you know you've got to think. Well, if the if the volunteers are running away when they're probed and Kharkiv, then how are the conscripts going to act? Then, as Casey said, uh, you, they could go to peace negotiations. Although Kiev understands very well that the the accords that were agreed in the wake of the 2014 war they didn't mean an end to Russia's ambitions. They were they were the beginning of them, and Kiev has. No illusions, I think, that if there were a pause in operations, the Russians would use that as an opportunity to regroup, to retrain, to perhaps mobilise, um, increase the size of their army, replenish their troops, their equipment, and so on. And obviously the, the problem would not go away. And the fact that Kyiv now is uh, is enjoying success on the battlefield means that it has greater leverage. And why should it settle for limited concessions when clearly now it looks like they have the upper hand? And the final option is some kind of drastic escalation, like uh, the use of nuclear weapons, which has always been a risk throughout this conflict. But potentially, if if Putin is backed into a corner and conventional and really losing a, a conventional war, then perhaps he might go for 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 a reckless gamble like that. Although that would bring untold consequences and would be a, an illustration of Russia's extreme weakness and would further threaten the 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 survival of his regime. I mean. A lot of the kind of bargain that both the Russian people and the Russian elites had with Putin was destroyed as a result of this war. And even the pro war hawks now are not getting what they want, not getting a strong, uh, a strong army when, and, and, and the borders of Russia expanding every, every year as the joke, oh, why, why go abroad? When you can stay in Russia, the borders expand every year and they're not even getting that. So basically it puts Putin in a, in a very, in a very difficult situation and potentially, um, that might also mean that he could act more recklessly. I mean, you know, Katie, Katie spoke very well about this, but when all the checks and all the alternate uh, centers of power are systematically dismantled, then it just comes down to one person's whims, one person's uh, psychology. There are no checks, there are no, no alternate um, mechanisms. And, and that might mean that uh, things could potentially be dangerous.
2: Ido, do you want to just briefly talk about um the Russian nationalist critique of Putin because I think there's kind of baked into this idea but that like maybe this could bring Putin down is the sense that and then somebody more reasonable will will come to power but do you want to do you want to talk about how the domestic political landscape there has been shaping up?
0: I suppose the unexpected um aspects of this latest counter offensive is that the ukrainians have not allowed journalists to go to the front lines, which um, previously they had been quite open with access to the press uh, on, on the Ukrainian side, and they're not allowing journalists uh, to see the progress of the offensive. And so, strangely enough, uh, some of the most sort of accurate reports of the state of the offensive have been these Russian military and nationalist bloggers, people like Igor stokov and um, they said so they're these kind of nationalist bloggers. They mostly write on Telegram and they're the ones who are reporting that the Russians are getting routed and that they were losing places like Izium. Really, actually, I think in in many cases, the news broke from them and we later got confirmation. But the first kind of signs that things were going really badly were reports from, uh, from people like them. And of course, because they're nationalists, uh, they are calling for a harsher line. So they they wanted, for example, a full mobilization months ago because they recognized uh, that however much Putin perhaps thought that he could just grind the Ukrainians down. That was not really the reality of what was happening on the ground. And I suppose the, the nationalist critique coming from, from people like him and these other people to the right of Putin is that Putin is not being tough enough on the Ukrainians, I mean, if you can believe that. So the, the Russians hit, uh, for example, the, the power grid in Kharkiv um, in retaliation for the, for the offensive and there were people on state TV. Simon Yan, for example, who's the head of RT, uh, was saying that the Ukrainians should be made to live in darkness and cold through the winter. Um, so there's really kind of calls to basically punish the civilian population. And of course, if, if you remember the episode of uh, the, the murder of uh, Daria Dugina a few weeks ago, she was, of course, I guess, broadly part of that kind of nationalist wing of the Russian political media environment. And we still don't know who, who killed her, but there are some people saying that her murder might have served as a warning to people on the, to critics of Putin on the nationalist right, who might have been tempted to, to become increasingly vocal in their, in their criticism of how the war is being prosecuted.
3: We will leave that there. There are a host of pieces that we mentioned that we will put in the show notes to this episode. And of course, we will continue to follow the story of the Russian war in Ukraine and what it means for both Russia and Ukraine.
0: Wherever you are in the world,
3: if you're interested in global affairs,
0: you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12.
3: That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America.
0: Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
2: From The New Statesman comes a new podcast audio long reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state
3: took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety.
2: Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America.
0: He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge, private medicine makes me sick.
2: Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our Audio Long Reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman
1: wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
3: But now it is time to turn to a section that we like to call
2: US Desk.
3: U.S. That was Perfect. That was our best yet, I think. Our question this week comes from a listener who wanted to know, why did Sweden Democrats do so well in Sweden's election?
0: Hi, it's Ido here. Just to let you know that we recorded this discussion before we knew the final results, which show that the right-wing bloc in the Swedish parliament has a three-seat majority. But when we recorded this, we didn't have the final figures. So just keep that in mind, but the discussion should still hold.
3: At the time that we're reporting this, I don't actually know who won Sweden's election, but we do know that right now, as I'm speaking, the Sweden Democrats are poised to be the second most successful party and that the right wing bloc, if it does not win outright, will have come quite close. So the Sweden Democrats, if you remember from the episode where we had Megan on to talk about this election or the following interview episode where she interviewed somebody on Sweden's election. This is a party that has its roots in really like the extreme right. Like we're talking like the fascist right, like there were some like neo-Nazi elements. And in the 90s, they claimed to have disavowed that there and and, and sort of tried to present themselves as more, have since tried to present themselves as more mainstream. Some people take this to mean they're now like a, a right wing party and some look and say, nope, that's a far right party that's put on a better outfit. Why did they do as well as they did? Most of what I have seen on this suggests that uh, they were able to campaign effectively on crime, violence in Sweden. But two, and we should just be honest about this, that they they really capitalized on this concept of Sweden-ness and Swedish identity and said that immigration, Sweden's asylum policies, which, you know, Sweden sort of distinguished itself within Europe and its openness to immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees, that that threatens, you know, the very concept of Sweden, obviously proved effective with voters
0: if the right block so the right block and the left block are basically at the moment it looks pretty much completely balanced so they both uh, pretty much have 50 percent of the vote and thus 50 percent of the seats uh will take one or two which means things will be finally balanced but if the right block which obviously includes uh the swedish democrats does succeed in forming government, it will be because they will rely on support from the Swedish Democrats, thus breaking a longstanding taboo in European politics for the mainstream, moderate, center-right not to work with the far-right. And as, as Jeremy writes in his piece, that's, that, that taboo is breaking uh, increasingly across Europe. And clearly, if we continue to see success, successes by uh, right-wing populist parties not only in Sweden, but you might, you might see it all over, all over Europe from, you know, France to to Italy and so on. I mean, in fact, in Italy, uh, a right-wing bloc supported by, largely by, by the far right is probably about to come to power as, as you're here on Monday. Um, So really this, this is a a taboo that is increasingly breaking across Europe and, and Sweden is just one example of that really.
3: That's a great point. And I always, I don't know, obviously American politics are not European politics, but watching this, I always just think that like. The center thinks that it's going to stay in control in this relationship and thinks that it's going to continue to be the one to decide how this partnership goes. And typically, when a moderate and an extremist get together, that is not what happens. So we'll, we'll, see. we'll see how it works out in Sweden's case.
2: But for now, Katie, please get us out of here. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us.
0: That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Tim Parks, as mentioned, on Italy's upcoming elections.
3: I did this interview and I learned quite a lot about Italy's electoral system, among among other things. So please do tune in. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do subscribe. And if you have already subscribed, thank you so much. Please also rate us five stars, five stars only, and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer is Vinay Robson. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time.